Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called My Rocky Mountain High. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, July 26, 2015. Last month, my wife and I enjoyed a week of hiking in the jaw-dropping beauty of the Rocky Mountain National Park in Colorado. Founded in 1915, this year marks its 100th anniversary. What a glorious week! We spotted several elk, watched artisans blow glass from a 2100-degree furnace, sipped lattes by a raging river, made a grocery run for a simple lakeside supper, and best of all, we enjoyed a week of friendship with our Jewish neighbors. After we got home, my wife joked that she was still humming John Denver's 1972 song, Rocky Mountain High. Which song, I'll admit, we sang out loud while driving up to 12,000 feet on the famous Trail Ridge Road, the highest continuous paved road in the United States. The fourth stanza of Denver's song expresses at least part of what we experience. Denver writes, Now he walks in quiet solitude the forest and the streams, seeking grace in every step he takes. His sight has turned inside himself to try and understand the serenity of a clear blue mountain lake. And then the reply, the refrain, you can talk to God and listen to the casual reply. While my wife channeled a musician, my, the hike made me think of a physicist in three poets. Just before we left for the Rockies, I finished a biography of Einstein. Einstein rejected all aspects of traditional religion but he also repudiated atheists who tried to claim him for their cause. In a letter about a year before he died, Einstein described himself as, quote, a deeply religious unbeliever who felt a cosmic awe at the beauty and complexity of the world. Hiking in the Rockies filled me with an Einstein sense of cosmic awe but with apologies to the famous physicist, basking in all that beauty made me feel like the psalmist this week from Psalm 14. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. My mind also pinged to the romantic poet William Wordsworth. I love my vocation of reading, writing, and reflection. But getting away from the books and into the outdoors is downright therapeutic. So I took to heart Wordsworth's rebuke in his poem, The Tables Turned. Listen to his poem. Up, up, my friend, and quit your books, or surely you'll grow double. Up, up, my friend, and clear your looks. Why all this toil and trouble? Books, tis a dull and endless trifle. Come, hear the woodland linnet. How sweet his music on my life. There's more of wisdom in it. 
One impulse from a vernal wood may teach you more of man, of moral evil and of good, than all the sages can. Sweet is the lore which nature brings, our meddling intellect, misshapes the beauteous forms of things we murder to dissect. Enough of science and of art, close up those barren leaves, come forth and bring with you a heart that watches and receives. To watch and receive, as Wordsworth puts it, the divine in nature is good advice. But another English poet, also named William, and a contemporary of Wordsworth, reminded me of the limits of a romantic view of nature, namely the problem of evil. In his poem, The Tiger, William Blake wondered, Tiger, tiger, burning bright, did he who made the lamb make thee? Nature alone is limited when it comes to communicating the experience of God. And so my third poet, Alfred Lord Tennyson, also a contemporary of the two Williams, famously observed that nature can be, quote, red in tooth and claw. The Rockies were gorgeous, but in fact, Mother Nature can be a real bitch. We hiked through the horrible destruction of a catastrophic flood from September 2013. One night at dinner, we sat beside a man confined to a wheelchair with cerebral palsy. And another night, our host described how last summer she came home to a bear in her kitchen. If your spiritual experience is limited to the material world, then your glass is either half empty or, at best, half full. A dim awareness of a powerful deity is good, but by itself, it's only half a loaf. The French reformer John Calvin described this ambiguous situation. On the one hand, he called the natural world a most beautiful book. Indeed, in Romans 1.20, Paul writes that since the creation of the world, <coughs> God's invisible qualities, <coughs> that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. On the other hand, as Calvin observed, we can be, quote, blind in this dazzling theater. And while sensing cosmic awe is a good thing, experiencing divine love is another and better thing. Nature alone can't tell you that. So, in addition to the book of nature, we need the book of scripture which Calvin compared to a pair of spectacles that corrects blurry vision. Scripture tells us the story of Jesus, what Paul calls the mysterious good news that God was in Christ, revealing his love and redeeming his world. And this is where a gaggle of sixth-grade girls on our hike spoke more than they could have known. On our hardest day, we hiked 10 miles with 3,000 feet of elevation gain.
to a peak called Estes Cone. The last half mile we climbed 700 feet, and the last 100 feet of that we had to abandon our hiking poles in order to scramble up a rock pile. Having huffed and puffed our way to 9,852 feet, we anticipated silence and solitude. But what we got was a dozen giggling girls from a local Christian camp. And wouldn't you know it, we were just in time for the counselor's sermonette. And how long did it take God to create all this incredible beauty that we see from up here? Six days. And how long did it take God to create you? Nine months. That's right. So if God created everything in six days, but took nine months to create you, then everything you now see from Estes Cone is a reminder of how much God loves you without any conditions or limits. To their credit, when they started down the mountain a little later, the camp counselors apologized for hogging the psychic space in such a public way. At first I was irritated and embarrassed. What would our Jewish friends think? Should I say something? Try to explain? Or maybe pretend I didn't hear anything? Later, I decided that at some level, I was badly wrong. What better thing is there for a person to hear than that they are loved by God, especially our teenagers? And that's Paul's prayer in this week's epistle from Ephesians chapter 3. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth of God's love, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In a clever play on words, Paul says that God is the patera of every patria, that is, the father of every family. He prays that every person, not just some people, would experience God's incomprehensible and unconditional love. Thanks to those sixth graders, that was my Rocky Mountain High, to feel God's love for me in the beauty of his creation and in the story of Jesus. For books this week, I review the biography of Einstein. The author is Steve Gimble, and the title, Einstein, His Space and Time. New Haven, Yale University Press, 2015. 
This book is 191 pages. This short biography is one of the titles in Yale University Press's series called Jewish Lives of interpretive biographies of Jewish figures from all walks of life, literature, religion, philosophy, politics, culture, economics, art, and the sciences. About two dozen titles are already published in this series, with about the same number still forthcoming. Stephen Gimbel does a wonderful job of introducing a complicated man in a complicated field without getting lost in the weeds. The six chapters are a good mix of Einstein's science, politics, personal life, and professional career. Einstein grew up in a Jewish family that was so secular that they prided themselves on sending their son to a Catholic school. They were not only non-observant, says Gimbel, they were what he calls anti-observant. It wasn't long before the young Albert showed what would be a lifelong trait, his contempt for all authority and convention, both secular and sacred. Gimbel writes, in his, mind, in his mind, both nationalism and religiosity were symptoms of a shackled mind, requiring unthinking loyalty to a structure built on authority. And so, for example, Einstein renounced both his Judaism and his German citizenship as a teenager. Gimbel does an especially good job of showing how Einstein's science had political ramifications. In Nazi Germany, in democratic America under J. Edgar Hoover, for Israel and the Zionist movement, and among fellow scientists with the advent of the atomic age in quantum mechanics. The patent clerk who became a global celebrity and a Nobel laureate was not a detached, so-called eccentric genius. He was what Gimbel calls the high priest of modernism, a man of his own space and time, an outspoken pacifist who deplored militarism, and who remained actively engaged in international affairs throughout his life. Once again, Stephen Gimbel, Einstein, His Space and Time. It's a new book, Yale University Press, 2015. For movies this week, we turn to a brand new animated film released this summer. The title of the movie, Inside Out. Do you ever look at someone and wonder what's going on inside their head? Disney Pixar's new movie, Inside Out, explores this question, which also happens to appear in the opening trailer, in their animated film released in June. The story is set, quite literally, inside the head of Riley, a young girl from Minnesota. Joy, sadness, anger, disgust, and fear are personifications of Riley's emotions. This team of five works in so-called head quarters, acting as an emotional pit crew to coach Riley through each day and 
more importantly, to inventory her memories that shape her personality. So, for example, when Dad tries to feed baby Riley broccoli, disgust shoves it away. Or, as Riley learns to ice skate, fear makes sure that she stays close to Mom and Dad. Riley grows up with joy leading the team, in sadness kept at arm's length in headquarters. The majority of her memories are happy ones, like her loving parents, playing hockey in her home in Minnesota. But when Riley's family moves to San Francisco, joy and sadness are separated from headquarters. With fear, disgust, and anger alone in headquarters, Riley's personality and relationships take a turn. Joy and sadness struggle, while the rest of Riley's head tries to reestablish her emotional balance. The polarized duo wanders through the maze of long-term memory, races to catch the train of thought, hijacks Riley's dream studio, and more. Joy, fear, disgust, anger, and even sadness have to work together to save their beloved Riley. This is a creative and imaginative venture, beautifully animated with a touching message. It will leave you smiling. And by the way, don't be late to the theater or you'll miss another wonderful Pixar digital short before the main film. Fun for kids and adults alike. Make sure you turn inside out this summer. And in keeping with my theme of a Rocky Mountain High out in the world of nature, for poetry this week, we've posted a very short poem by Wendell Berry, poet, essayist, farmer, and novelist. It's called The Peace of Wild Things. When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be. I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day-blind stars waiting with their light. For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and am free. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 26, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.